now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode six of our drug season, Just Science uses the 30-year career of Dr. Randy Hanslick of the Fulton County Medical Examiner's Office in Atlanta to explore the field of forensic pathology. Nerd out with Dr. John Morgan and Dr. Hanslick as they discuss everything you'd want to know about medical legal death investigation from the history of forensic pathology, board certifications and standards, to the complexities between the coroner and medical examiner systems and shortages. Listen along as Dr. Hanslick addresses how this shortage of pathologists links with the opioid crisis and how having more pathologists might have helped raise awareness sooner. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Today, we have one of the great contributors to the field of forensic pathology of the last generation. And some of the things that he's been saying for the last few years, I think, is are especially relevant. He was a member of the National Commission on Forensic Science and Fulton County Medical Examiner for how many years, Randy? Well, I started working in that office in 1982, but I became the chief in 1998. So I was the chief medical examiner there for about 18 years. My time span there spread over basically 35 years. That's a pretty good career, and that Randy is Randy Hanslick, who was uh, also a, a fellow of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences. He worked with me on a fair number of projects when I was at NIJ, including some examination of death scene investigation guidelines. Uh, he worked with the CDC on some unexplained infant death investigations. He uh, has been very, very active over the years with the National Association of Medical Examiners over 200 publications, a faculty member of Emory University. And as I said, there's years and years of not only work in, in medical examiner offices uh, in Fulton County, but work uh, even just as importantly in national policy with the National Commission on Forensic Science. Welcome, Randy. Thank you very much. So we're going to be talking a little bit today about a few different topics around forensic pathology that uh, you know, it was very hard to kind of narrow it down because Randy has been involved in a number of different things. But we're going to talk a, a little bit about medical legal death investigation systems in general, and in particular, the, the contrast between coroner and medical examiner systems. We're going to talk about uh, the uh, state of board-certified forensic pathology. Let's actually start with that, Randy, because I was talking to my daughter the other day. She's a medical career, and she has the advantage of not being queasy. And I, I was trying to tell her, hey, you know, you should be thinking about forensic pathology. You know, there's a, a real need. And she's, I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> it takes a certain breed to, to get into it. The shortage uh, of, uh, of board-certified forensic pathologists in the country today. Yes, there is. There's uh, not near as many as we should have. I mean, offices are getting by, you know, uh, with real high caseloads and things like that. But if you figure out how many we should have in the country, 
to have everybody, you know, have time to do the job correctly and efficiently, uh, we're, we're way below that number. One of the things that's of value, let's think about it a little bit from a historical perspective. Certification is very much an element of a modern system of medical legal death investigation. When certification, I guess, became a thing back in the 1960s, really, is that right? Yeah, 1959 was the first year that there was a, uh, a board certification offered in forensic pathology. And at that time, uh, what was the thought? I mean, what, what is, why, why was the, the, the board deciding to do a certification, and did they feel like there was a uh, lack of professionalism in the field at the time? Yeah, I think that had a lot to do with it. The the field kind of just grew on its own, and people were working based on experience they had in you know working in death investigation offices, and there was no real defined professional status of board certification in the field. So there in the nineteen late nineteen fifties, I think there were enough people who had been working in the field. They decided to go ahead and you know develop a board certification exam through the American Board of Pathology. It varied through the years how you could obtain that training and certification, but the idea to really professionalize the field with the certification came out in the late 1950s. There was the other National Academies report, which is the one from 1928, I believe, that talked about some of the gaps in death investigation systems. That old report, I don't know what your view is, my view has always been, you could just dust off that report, put 2018 on it, <laughs> it'd be pretty relevant today. Yeah, that's um, that's pretty much right. I mean, there was the uh, National Research Council report in 1928, uh, made a lot of really good points. And then there was another one in 1932 and a model law in 1954. And then yet another NRC report in 1968. There were conferences in the 80s over that, geez, what is it now, 90 years there have been multiple summits and conferences and reports that have pretty much, you know, drawn the same conclusions. And the bottom line is that some things have changed, but uh, a lot of the major recommendations in those reports are really uh, still haven't been implemented. So did the National Research Council back in the 20s and 30s recognize the need for a board certification, or was that something that came out later? I think that was uh, later on. They were concentrating more on the coroner-type system versus more of a medical examiner system. By that time, they'd already had a medical examiner system in New York City. It started in 1918, so the concept was out there. They were more concerned, I think, with whether these systems should be university-based, kind of like they are in Europe, whether they should do away with the coroner systems and move toward medical examiner systems. It had more to do with the basic underlying system type than the, the qualifications of the professionals. Now, here in North Carolina, of course, our medical examiner system is very closely tied to NC State and the universities here in the state. And, and I don't know, it was Emory University allied with the Fulton County medical examiner system, or is that just something that was your own professional experience? Well, it always had a loose affiliation in that People who were training in pathology at Emory and the pathology residencies rotated through the medical examiner's office to get an introduction to the field. And it wasn't until later when I became the chief in 1998 that there was a, a formal arrangement between the county and the university where the county would 
basically pay the university for the chief medical examiner services. But that's not that common of a situation in the United States. In, in most places where there's an affiliation with a medical school, it's more of a loose affiliation where the pathologist may have a, a clinical appointment, often not even paid. You know, they have a title. They teach the residents and the forensic pathology fellows, but it's not really run through the university. There are some places like that now in New Mexico where it's pretty much run through, you know, the University of New Mexico for the state system there. But that's really pretty much distinctly uncommon. There's still just a haphazard set of situations out there where the there's not a strong financial and, uh, you know, administrative backing from medical schools and, and universities. And, of course, the classic debate is this one coroner versus medical examiners. I know you in particular, in some respects, you've, you've been kind of arguing that that debate is a little tired, a little over, maybe even irrelevant. I mean, can you explain how you feel about that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, back when I was younger, of course, I was kind of on the bandwagon that it didn't make sense to have these antiquated systems and, you know, yeah, just replace them with a medical examiner system. But the, the reality of that is that it's hard to do for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, coroners are elected positions, and they tend to have strong, you know, political allies. In some instances, they're, you know, constitutional officers. You'd have to change the state constitution. There are issues of supply and demand where a county may not have a whole lot of deaths. The budget of the county may not be such that it can afford a medical examiner system. So you have to look at it. And my, my view on it in this day is you have to look at it on what the current system is doing and how it's operating, what type of system it is, and then identify needs and change things to meet those needs. Now, that might be, for example, raising the bar to be a coroner, not not eliminating the coroners in those counties, but perhaps creating higher standards or requirements to be the coroner. In other places, it might make sense to look at multiple counties and add them together, and you might see that there's enough people and enough tax dollars there to support a regional medical examiner system. So I think the key is to get the system for each state to look at its system, identify what the strengths and weaknesses are, and then try to make a decision on how they want to go. Do they want to keep what they have? Do they want to try to improve it in some way? And if so, you know, what are those improvements going to be? So the key really is having the board-certified forensic pathologist in the system. So whether that person is working with somebody who's called a medical examiner or somebody who is a, a coroner is less relevant, would you say? I mean, is, that, is there other places where there are no board-certified forensic pathologists? Yeah, there's places around the country where the forensic pathologists are far away from where the deaths are happening, which means they have right. to transport the bodies long ways to, you know, to get the autopsy. And that imposes costs, as you know, in time, and it makes it harder communication-wise to work together because you're working from distances. But I think the key is that, that every place needs to have access in some way to people who are adequately trained in forensic pathology and specifically, uh, you know, board certified in forensic pathology that have gone through a formal training program. There are still a lot of places around the country where 
you know, some forensic cases at least are done by hospital pathologists who may have had some experience in forensic but didn't have official formal training or may not be board certified. So the key is having the services available to those local coroners in a reasonable amount of time and at a reasonable amount of cost. Now, one of the weaknesses of the entire system, and it isn't just in coroner system, is that, you know, there's only so many resources to go around, right? And you're not going to have a more formal examination of the vast majority of deaths. And so you really are relying a lot in the coroner system on the judgment of somebody who may not have the training necessary to be able to make those judgments where there might be a death that has the markers of being suspicious but or having other issues associated with it. So how do you get around that issue? Because that does mean that you're reliant on that coroner to, to make some what are very difficult decisions sometimes. Yeah, they serve as the frontline person, the decision maker. And of course, some of the standards and recommended policies and procedures now are that those coroners that are in situations like that should at least be able to consult with their medical examiner or forensic pathologist and hear what they say and make decisions based on you know, the recommendations of the pathologist. But that, that doesn't always happen. The coroners have limited budgets. They only have so many dollars they can spend per year on their investigations. So a lot of them will just make the call for example, in an apparent suicide or a traffic fatality or something, that there's nothing suspicious here. It seems to be fairly apparent uh, what happened. There's no need to spend all this money to investigate it. And they may just simply not refer the case to an autopsy center or a forensic pathologist. It varies by state law. Each state has their own laws, and it varies by state what those coroners have to do. But it's not uncommon for them in the smaller, more rural jurisdictions to just make decisions and handle the case and not and not involve the rest of the system, so to speak. So I'm looking at your 2007 paper. And by the way, Randy is very, as I mentioned at the front, is pretty well published, but he's published on this issue quite substantially. And at that time in 2007, there were about 19 states that had state medical examiner systems and no coroner, and another couple of states that had medical examiner in each county in their system. But the vast majority of states were coroner-based systems, and so that still must be the case. Are there many conversions going on right now between from coroner to medical examiner in the country? No, that's slowed down quite a bit. And, uh, you know, if you look back at history, back in 1954, there was a model post-mortem examinations act that came out that suggested that perhaps medical examiner systems would be the preferred way to go. And uh, a number of states in advance of the actual release of that that knew about it started to change their systems. And in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s, there were quite a few jurisdictions that changed from coroner to medical examiner systems or who put state medical examiner systems in place with or without coroners. But after that, in the 90s and since, it's just kind of uh, died off, so to speak, in terms of uh, making conversions. And a lot of it has to do with the reasons I've already mentioned, that in some geographic areas, either because of the size of the area or their finances and tax base or number of deaths, it's a tough way to go to change the system they have. And it's almost as if, the, if you want to call it the market, the market for medical examiner system went about as far as it could practically go. Well, I mean, one thing that you point out, I think you mentioned it here uh, earlier, and it's certainly, certainly the case, and that is that regionalization is kind of the answer to an awful lot of one's concerns about corner systems. And Texas actually is, is a good example of that, right? I mean, you have basically have a lot of 
coroners, but you also have uh, medical examiners in the major cities and some of the larger counties. In general, do you think that that experience has been working out in a positive way for uh, regional? And is, is that something that can be extended in some practical way? Yeah, and I think, you know, you kind of have two levels of regionalization. You have formal systems that have districts or regions like Florida, where they're multi-county entities, where a, a certain medical examiner district serves multiple counties. In Virginia, there's formal offices in Roanoke and, you know, Richmond and Norfolk and other places there, and, and they're well-defined administratively. But in a lot of areas, the regionalization has just kind of become a de facto entity for example, in Texas, as you mentioned, that you have medical examiners in Dallas and Houston and Austin, and just by need or out of, let's just call it a habit over time, surrounding jurisdictions will start sending their cases there. So they tend to serve as a regional center, but they weren't designed that way from the start. They didn't sit down and look at the population and say, okay, we're going to have these counties in this region and this county. Uh, they've just kind of emerged. So you have two types of setups where there's been a, a planned out regional system and then ones that have just kind of spontaneously emerged. And then, of course, in some places, there still aren't really any regional systems. So one of the things that you've pointed out in the past, and that is the importance of accreditation, but accreditation even has made enormous progress in crime laboratories outside the medical examiner, like traditional crime laboratories. And it's made some progress within the medical examiner community, but it is by no means universal at this point, right? No. And I mean, if you look at all of the death investigation offices in the country, you know, there's over 2,000 of them. There's 300 or so that are some sort of medical examiner system, either on the state level, a district or regional level, or on an autonomous county basis. And then the rest, more than 1,900, are pretty much county coroner systems. So you look at the National Association of Medical Examiners, who offers an accreditation. I don't know what the exact number is now, but typically there's 70 or 80 or maybe 90 offices in the country that are either provisionally accredited or fully accredited by name. Well, that's only a small portion of the medical examiner offices. And when you look at the 2,000 some offices, including coroner offices, it's, it's a real small portion. Now, the International Association of Coroners and Medical Examiners has its own accreditation program, and they have different levels of accreditations. But, you know, a lot of those offices are not accredited by the International Association of Coroners and Medical Examiners either. So bottom line is there's still a lot of offices that are not accredited, and there's a number of reasons for that. Some, frankly, don't see the need in it. I mean, they're functioning, and they say, well, we're, we're here and we're working. You know, why do we have to be accredited? Other ones can't meet the criteria. Their caseloads are too high. You know, the whole purpose of accreditation is to show that you're running according to some professional guidelines and standards and uh, that your caseloads aren't excessive and that you have enough money to do what you're supposed to do. Well, many offices can't meet those requirements. Yeah, so, so, that, so my understanding, and I don't, I, don't, is, is, I don't is this the accreditation standard? But the traditional standard was you should have nine medical legal death investigators per 1,000 expected autopsies in an office. Um, yeah, that's about right. That's, that's a kind of a guideline. That's not a, uh, a rigid standard. You know, that's kind of an operating principle. But um, there are things in the uh, forensic autopsy performance standards, for example, that a forensic pathologist isn't supposed to perform more than, well, let's just say 350 complete autopsies a year. But there are still places where they're doing five, 600 or more, you know, 700 complete autopsies. But the way the, the accreditation standards are set up, there's checklists and they ask questions like, do you have uh, 
enough investigators to respond to death scenes when needed and stuff. Well, then the question is, well, what's when needed? And, you know, most places that go through that will cite that they're not able to do what they need to do. So they can't answer affirmatively to that checklist item. But there aren't a whole lot of the standards that, that boil down to specific numbers. They ask questions about how many scenes you went to, what percentage of your deaths are of undetermined manner, you know, to get an idea whether you're falling into general patterns that seem acceptable. That is one of the secret sauces of forensic pathology that kind of surprised me as an observer. I didn't realize just how much variation there was of the standard of judgment across cases. And it is very much, I guess, part of the idea that, you know, these, these are folks who, to some extent, were trained not that much differently than a clinical physician. And therefore, they take a fairly clinical view of the case. And so they'll, there'll be uh, implications based on who trained them, really, with respect to what they might say or not say in, uh, yeah. in individual cases. If you look around the country at, at the way certain offices operate, and they have certain policies and procedures that they follow or they take a certain approach to cases in determining the manner of death, let's say. Quite often, you trace that back to where the person trained, which makes sense, and they do it the same way as the uh, office in, in which they trained. They get, that's the way they did it. That's the way they were trained, and when they move on, they, they carry that thought process with them. So the place of training has a, a huge amount to do with the approach to cases, and so does local custom and even law in some states. For example, in Utah for a long time, they basically didn't really even investigate traffic fatalities. It just wasn't something that the medical examiner did. Other places, you know, they'll do a complete autopsy on every suicide victim. In other places, if it's fairly clear, they might just do an external exam and draw toxicology. Those things vary widely still around, around the country. Yeah, how do you balance that against the accreditation standards? I mean, you uh, you have to have some specificity in the accreditation standards, and there has to be some judgment there with respect to what's reasonable to do in, in these cases and what's not. So you're saying the accreditation standards are a little bit fuzzy in order to get around that issue, or how does that work? Yeah, they are, and there's a, a catch in there that if something happens in your system where the reason for that happening is out of your control, it may be forgiven. Let's say that you just don't have the money to do certain things, but the people who are determining your budget, you know, don't give you the money you need, but you don't really have any voice in the budget. There may be some leniency there because you're not in control of what's actually happening. That's not saying that it's right, but that's the, the end point of it is that there's inspector discretion involved in whether this is really a serious issue and you also have to remember that you have the forensic autopsy performance standards, which are really separate from the office accreditation process. The standards, for example, may say that you should do a complete autopsy in every suspected drug overdose death because you don't know what their underlying medical conditions are and this and that. Well, the accreditation standards may not require that. So there's a difference between the professional component of the forensic pathology practice and the procedures that the offices are using. As I mentioned at the outset, you were very heavily involved with the National Commission on Forensic Science, uh, eventually appointed a member right before they were disbanded. But you were very heavily involved on the subcommittee involved on these issues with forensic pathology. Did you all examine this, the issue of accreditation and current state, and think about this set of problems around accreditation? We looked at the numbers for sure and how many conceivable accredited offices there could be and how many there were, and we, we got into discussions about why some may not have been. But we didn't really 
get into examining the specific criteria. Those issues were forwarded on to the death investigation groups at the uh, NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology groups on the uh, death investigation and forensic sciences. So the, and the, the day-to-day yeah. nitty-gritty was forwarded on to them to perhaps redo standards, redo accreditation, look at everything that was out there, try to come up with an official version that would be acceptable to everybody. The commission didn't want to get down into that level in it. So the short answer is no, the commission didn't look at all of that specifically, but the other groups supposedly are looking at that. Yeah, I mean, you all, though, did look very closely at this whole issue of supply of forensic pathologists and some people estimate that we have maybe one half to maybe one third of the number of forensic pathologists we really should have based on some of the basic standards that we've been talking about. How did you all approach that? And what are some of the things that the commission recommended to try to improve the supply of forensic pathologists? Of course, you have to be a physician to become a forensic pathologist. So there needs to be some effort even prior to medical school to perhaps get people to go into medicine specifically because they want to be a forensic pathologist. There needs to be an awareness there, but there also needs to be more quality exposure to forensic pathology during medical school so that people know what the profession's about, what it entails, and what the ins and outs of it are. And in many instances, the quality of the exposure to it in medical school is just substandard. So there's the idea of recruitment, trying to recruit people into the field. But then you have the very real issues that because many of these jobs are government-funded jobs, the salaries are low compared to what you could make in the private sector or working in a private pathology group. So the financial incentive to go into the field is lacking. And as you know, when you go through a professional school or medical school, you know, you can end up thousands of dollars in debt from uh, your education. And there really hasn't been any significant extent of loan forgiveness for people who go into this field. You know, it's basically a public service field. It's like being a private practitioner in an underserved area of the country where there's financial incentives for people to work in those settings. But nothing on any sort of a large scale has been developed like that in forensic pathology. So, you know, efforts need to be targeted at increasing the salary, perhaps loan forgiveness. And uh, another problem is that there are a lot of training positions that aren't funded. You know, there's 80 or more now approved training positions in the country every year, but maybe only 50 or 60 of them actually have funds to put somebody in that position. So there needs to be a mechanism to provide funding for some of those positions that exist but don't have any money attached to them. So it's a kind of a complex set of issues there. You were at Fulton County a long time. So yeah. is that something you did straight out of medical school, or how did you wind up at Fulton County and doing death investigation? Well, I think I'm like a lot of people who ended up going to uh, into the field because they had a good exposure to the autopsy and to death investigation when they were in medical school or doing their pathology training. I did. I went to medical school uh, and did my first part of my pathology training in Columbus, Ohio, at Ohio State University, and they had a very positive autopsy program. They did the medical legal death investigations in the same morgue, just kind of behind another wall from where we did the hospital autopsies. And the people, the professors in that were very admirable people and very interested and grew you into it. So I got exposed to it that way and then just really liked it. I stayed in it. That's pretty typical of people who have gone into this field. They've had a professor or they've had an experience in their training that was really positive regarding the autopsy and death investigation, and they realized 
but what a great specialty it is and, and stayed in it. I don't think there's a whole lot of people who just blindly picked it. They have a, they have a reason they went <laughs> into it, and, and, and they got encouraged to go into it. There's actually active discouragement in some areas. So, you know, so you go to some medical schools or some, you know, hospital training centers, and you tell them you want to be a forensic pathologist, and, you know, they think it's like an inferior job, and you're not using your skills, and there's active discouragement in going into the field. So, uh, to be a Is that part of the culture of forensic pathology in general? I mean, I, to some extent, a forensic pathologist, outside of just the issue of, you know, we think about it in terms of crime, but obviously there's a huge deal with respect to how medicine is done. You really do see an awful lot about what happens with respect to unusual cases in that area. And is there a tension between the medical community in general and the medical legal community? I don't know that it's really a tension. It's just that a lot of people don't see the value in it. They just don't understand that it goes beyond, you know, pulling bullets out of homicide victims. Uh, we have complicated medical issues. We have people who have died of undetermined medical causes suddenly and unexpectedly. And, you know, it, that does draw in hospitals and the quality of medical care and things like that. But a, a lot of people just don't understand the scope of what forensic pathologists do. And, uh, you know, they typically think of the TV shows and, you know, the guy shows up and says his daddy's been dead since yesterday and he was shot. You know, that's about all you do. Well, that's homicides is just a small percentage of the work. It's probably less than 10 percent of what forensic pathologists do in most areas of the country. The rest of it's, you know, public health stuff, murder vehicle fatalities, uh, suicide, drug overdoses. So it's yeah, just it's a lack of understanding of the scope of what we do. It's unfortunate because I think we do get into crises that are related to the death investigation community. And because we don't have a sufficient amount of staff, I don't think we catch uh, things as early as we might. I mean, uh, the obvious one that we've been talking about a lot on the podcast is the opioid epidemic. But uh, yeah. uh, you have uh, enormous numbers of medical issues out there as well that I think probably are not examined as closely as they might be. Yeah, and that's the type of thing where, you know, all around the country, people were recognizing, geez, what's going on? All of a sudden, we're seeing all these heroin deaths and then fentanyl, and, you know, it took a while to get the dots all connected, to, and they still aren't all connected, but, you know, to realize that there was a really emerging problem there. I mean, just to put it in perspective, four or five years before I left Fulton County, we may have had, you know, two or three heroin deaths in a year, and then all of a sudden, you know, we're 100 or more. You know, completely uh, out of the blue. Then, of course, as the drug patterns change, you start seeing the fentanyl and all of the other things. But a lot of these offices are so busy just getting the casework done that they don't really have the in-house personnel to do the epidemiology and to put all the stuff together to get with health and law enforcement to cut these things off or address them, you know, earlier. They just don't have the staff. I mean, if you think about it, that increase in heroin deaths in my office, and it's the same in many places around the country, is the equivalent of a full-time forensic pathologist. Right. If you're not given <laughs> yeah. any more people, all of a sudden everybody's doing 25% more cases. No more pay, a lot more work, less time to think about the cases. You know, that can be a real, a real problem. So let's just do a little bit of a thought experiment real quick, Randy. And let's think about, you know, in 10 years, things will hopefully be have gotten a little better in terms of the supply. Probably not, though, right? <laughs> We've mentioned a few different things. One of them is very much on the lines of training and, and improving the culture and acceptance of, of, of going into forensic pathology. 
uh, in some of the educational institutions. There's a retention issue here too, isn't there? I mean, there's there's some some issues to some extent with respect to retention of forensic pathologists in the field. Yeah, uh, of the people who do do a fellowship year in training now, and you know, end up taking their board exam, may or may not, but most do. But there's you know, 10% or more who don't even go into forensic pathology after they've done that. They they end up practicing in another specialty. They happen to have that board exam, but they're not really working as a full-time forensic pathologist or at all. Then there's some who do it for a while, and then they drop out. Uh, so, you know, the net result is that uh, 20% or more of the people that we actually train end up not practicing forensic pathology at all. And of the rest that do, some of them only do it part-time. So when you look at the fact that we only put out about, let's be generous and say, 40 new board-certified forensic pathologists a year in the entire country, it's actually usually closer to 30. But when you, you figure that, you know, we've been around since the 50s and 60s, and a lot of the people that are practicing are, you know, like me now, they're senior citizens or they're getting there or they're retirement age, that number of people barely keeps up with death and retirement. So it's going to be a slow process at the current rate to uh, get up to the 1,000 or so uh, full-time equivalents that we should have. So there are 18,000 medical students, Yeah, 300, only 300. I'm surprised at the number. Only 300 go into a pathology residency? I would have well, thought that there would have been. It's had its ups and downs. It's been popular at some point and less popular at others. But, you know, I can remember some years where it was 500 or more in, in pathology. But it's still in the hundreds compared to, you know, like thousands in internal medicine. And then, you know, right. out of that, let's just say it's 500 pathology residents, you know. If you get 10% of them to go into forensic pathology, you're only talking about 50 people. Yeah, right. You know, and so you're not going to get 10% of them to go into it. So that's that whole idea of really having to promote the specialty early on to get people to go to medical school just to do this, get them early to go into pathology because those are the prerequisites to be the forensic pathologist. So in general medicine, one of the things that has been looked at a lot is you know things like physician assistance and other mechanisms that allow you to get folks to a certain level of education to at least do certain kinds of work so that you're able to extend the activity of the person who's the you know, medical doctor. Are there ways to do that within the forensic pathology area? Well, that's been discussed, and there has been an effort uh, amongst uh, pathology assistants and physician assistants and things like that to, to kind of move into the field and perhaps try to get to the point where, you know, they're doing the autopsies under either direct or indirect supervision. But, of course, the profession doesn't want that to happen because they don't want to basically give the profession away. And you really do need to have a lot of medical knowledge to interpret all of the information you get as a medical examiner. So there's there's some professional resistance to that happening. Name put out a uh, position paper about the use of pathology assistance. Basically had to be done under direct supervision. There was a situation or a, a tendency, I think, in some places, uh, particularly rural areas, where local physicians uh, or physician assistants or pathology assistants may have been actually doing the autopsies and then sending the information somewhere else to the pathologist who reviewed it, but they weren't even in the same location. You know, the pathologist never actually saw the body and things like that, and that's what they're trying to avoid. They want to have some accountability on, you know, who's actually in charge of the case. But you're, the thing you have mentioned has come up, uh, 
Yeah. Sure, and it won't be that down the road that that's what's going to have to happen to meet the need somehow. But you know, you could do that. Just think of the regional center idea. You could have staff positions in charge there and have assistants on site that you can directly supervise. That's a lot more preferred than people being off site and having people conduct the exams, you know, without any direct supervision or anybody to go to and see something they don't know what it is. So, But that, I'm sure that's going to come up, diversifying uh, the people who are allowed to do these cases. Sure. Well, I have to say, I mean, as you might imagine, just thinking about all the filters that go in before somebody becomes a forensic pathologist, I'd say that among the professionals that I've encountered in my life, the forensic pathologists are certainly a unique breed. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell the listeners that before we let you go, I'm going to tell them the story. And we were trying to kind of do a little background on you and and I've discovered something. I've known you, I don't know, I know 10 or 15 years, I guess, by now. And I did not know that you had actually uh, recorded a song that actually wound up being semi-popular, right? So I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. And that was while you were in college, was it? When did, you, when did that happen? Well, I was not in college. I was out of college. I, I think I wrote it in 1979 and uh, recorded the, the record in like 1980 or 81. It was right around 79 and 80 when I wrote and recorded the song and you know it never became like uh in the top 20 in billboard although the song got written up in billboard magazine and things like that and it was it was on morning what they called am drive shows it was more like a, a kind of an underground type of hit than a, a widely popular hit but uh i had back when i was younger i did a lot of songwriting as a hobby and that was just one of the songs that i had written but a lot of people who heard it liked it a lot and i said well what the heck i might as well make a record and see what happens so it became reasonably popular. Well, I listened to it myself. I thought not only was it well written, I think you did a pretty good job singing it too, Randy. I thought it was pretty good. Oh, well, thank you. Well, we're going to do the outro of your song with your permission. We're going to end the podcast with people listening to your song so that they can appreciate the true brilliance of Randy Hanslick from (laughs) from, uh, cradle to grave. What 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 a thing to be known for. Well, thank you very much for being on the program, Randy. We certainly appreciate all the insights and the important information about forensic pathology and building the systems. Thank you very much. Jimmy and I are brothers. We went down different paths. Jimmy always listened to my mother. And me, I never liked to take a bath. As we grew and tumbled through adulthood, the pressure caused emotional drain. And now I'm slowly dying in the bottle. And Jimmy has to live with half a brain Yes, me, I've got a bottle in front of me And Jimmy has a frontal lobotomy Just different ways to kill the pain the same But I'd rather have a bottle in front of me Than have to have a frontal lobotomy I might be drunk, but at least I'm not insane Jimmy let his troubles drive him crazy He never tried to drown it in a drink I know that drinking makes my thinking hazy But at least I still have brains enough to think Jimmy's got a brain that isn't stable He doesn't have the sense to say his name I'm sorry that his doctor was unable To remove the proper portion of his brain Yes, me, I've got a bottle in front of me And Jimmy has a frontal lobotomy Just different ways to kill the pain the same a little bottomy I might be drunk but at least I'm not insane funny how the world works 
gushing over booze Either way it ends the same Hard to beat the living game Might as well enjoy it while you lose need a drink I start to shiver and Jimmy always viewed it with concern but I'd rather have cirrhosis of the liver than an intellected second to affirm I wonder if old Jimmy's gonna hear it when I tell him that his logic wasn't sound they'll dose him up on lots of evil spirits when they take him to the psychiatric grounds yes me I've got a bottle in front of me and Jimmy has a frontal lobotomy just different ways to kill the Next week on Just Science, Dr. Nadia Schreiber-Kampo, an associate professor at Florida International University, discusses her research on the effects of alcohol on witnesses and victims' memory for events and faces. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. (laughs) ¶¶